Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Man, praise God for the beauty and gift of good music to praise our God and Father and to encourage one another towards the gospel and understanding of who he is. Let's take our Bibles uh, and turn to the book of Joshua. If you're reading in English this morning, uh, which I think is most of you, it's the sixth book in our Bible, Joshua. We will be uh, starting this new book, excited to get into this book. And like James, we're going to take today and read through the entire book of Joshua together. And then we'll ask Jesus to come and deliver us from our nursery workers. Um, that's what we're doing. James affords us the opportunity, right, what we just did, to go through the whole book of James in one sitting. We cannot do that in the book of Joshua. I did it this week on Thursday. I took about two and a half hours, and silently I read through the entire book of Joshua. A great exercise, and I should, you should do it as well. We're not going to do that this morning. That's a great exercise, but I think we would, uh, if I did it out loud with proper dictation and getting through all the names, we might be here for quite some time. So instead today, I'm going to start us a little differently. Um, in two weeks, we're going to jump into chapter 1, verse 1. But until that time, we are going to do an introduction to the book. I'm going to take this week and next week to introduce us to the book of Joshua and try to help us situate ourselves as we prepare to hear from Joshua. Before we get into that, we want to hear a couple things. We want to think about how we should enter into this book. When you go to a book normally, you start a new book, you have some sort of preconceived notions about it. Usually you have an idea of who wrote it, uh, what the setting is in some way, usually in our context. But in the Bible, when we read one book, it seems like we run them all together. The thing we need to be careful of is not to treat each book like each other. Now, with respect and divine authority, yes. But as a unit of literature, they are going to be different. And so this morning, one of the things that I want to do is help us think through that question. What kind of genre are we looking at? Is this poetry? Is this narrative only? Is this genealogy? Are we looking at apocalyptic literature or love songs or wisdom literature? Are we talking about rules and laws? Are we talking about hero stories? Are we looking at cautionary tales? What are we looking at when we look at the book of Joshua? So it'll be helpful for us to kind of ask a few of these questions and get some answers before we enter in. Like I said before, I'm going to take two weeks to try to do this. In this first week, what I'd like to do is kind of look at the writing itself, how the book was composed, the people that it was written to, the time period in which it's written. Next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look at main purposes that we find in themes running through the entire book of Joshua. It'll help us to understand what we're supposed to be looking for. And especially as we only take a chunk each week, sometimes it can be so difficult to remember what happened exactly last week. And I know that's true of the whole book. So the end thing I'll do next week is kind of give us a lead-in to the book of Joshua. Kind of take us from where we were in Moses' time period into the book of Joshua and how we got here. So that's kind of the idea for the next two weeks. Before we begin, though, I want to do something uh, together. If you know anything about the book of Joshua, 
you know that this is a book of military engagement. This is a book about going into the land and conquering these people. We're talking about strategies. We're talking about spies going in. We're talking about weaponry. We're talking about how we burn down a city. We're talking about warfare. I want to take you for a moment to Ephesians chapter 6. Many of you know this already. 10 through 20 is this really helpful little section. We're only going to look at a few of these verses. But I want to take you there and read a few of these things because I think we need to do something this morning. And probably it's something that we should make a regular habit in our own hearts, but also as we do this corporately. I'm going to read for you Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. A moment here. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. That echoes Joshua exactly. If you know anything about Joshua, you have this be courageous and be mighty. Paul gets it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Whether you know it or not, this morning, and before we even got here, we have been engaged in military engagement. It may not be hand-to-hand against flesh and blood physically, We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. Maybe you didn't know that, but I'm telling you right now, you are. Paul reminds us that that's what's going on. And we don't see it, but this is what's going on. In the spiritual warfare, behind some of the things that we see so plainly, much more is going on. Paul's going to give us a bunch of gear here to put on as we get into this battle. We call it, this is the armor of God. I'm going, to, I'm going to read the last one, and then I'm going to go into another thing here that you'll see. I think it's important for us to realize. Look at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all pers- perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He has called us to something very simply here. Praying. Something that we're supposed to be doing all the time and persevering in for one another as we are engaged in this spiritual warfare. What I'd like us to do to begin, normally I read the passage and then I pray, and then we start working into the text. I'm asking us to do something different today. I want the whole small battalion that God has given to us this morning in this room to take up the, the, the weapons that we have in prayer. I want you to turn to your neighbor. We're going to take two or three minutes. This is all we're going to do. And I don't want you to ask for prayer requests. I don't want any of that. Let's go right to God and ask for a couple things in this warfare. These are the things I want us to ask for. Pray for God's grace. God tells us in James that he resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let us pray for humble hearts and grace that he would pour out on us. Another thing, very simply, man, we need wisdom. So let's pray for wisdom. James also, our brother, told us, ask for it, pray for it. So in this time, I ask that you would ask the Lord for wisdom. Also want you to ask the Lord that he would do something. Pray that he would form and create disciples. We want to see people go from deadness to life. Let's pray for that. Let's pray that in the spiritual warfare, Jesus would have his way in hearts this morning. 
And then lastly, I'll ask you to pray for me. I'm asking for this because I need the Spirit's power to work through me. Paul says that the words would be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So we're going to stop for one moment right here. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to pray sincerely for these things. Pray for grace, pray for wisdom, pray for conversion and growth and discipleship and lastly pray for me. I'm going to do this together. We'll pray. You guys pray next to each other and then I will close us in prayer and we'll get started. Let's go to prayer. Now, I don't know how many of you have been to um, maybe a big formal occasion, perhaps like a graduation ceremony or maybe a conference where you'd have someone give a formal introduction to someone who's going to speak. Um, usually what happens is the person who's the main event, who's really going to speak, has someone come before them and give them an idea of what's going on in this person's life and how, what credentials they have so that they can speak. I remember this kind of happened at LifeNet where I, where I used to work, and they'd have these talks, really helpful medical talks to help talk about the technology and the field, what was going on, the new things in medicine and where it was going, some of the use of the products that we would help with. Uh, at this particular time, I remember this guy getting up to give an introduction to the, to the next speaker who's a doctor, and he was just gushing. He was like, this guy is the greatest ever. He starts off the normal things. He tells them his background, where they came from, his undergraduate degree, tells them about where he got his medical doctorate degree, tells them about then the next steps, went into a residency here, and then went to a different residency and did really well there, and then went to two other fellowships. Then he went to these big-name hospitals in some of these cities and just turned the whole program around. I mean, this guy just like couldn't help himself. Like, this guy is incredible. And then he started talking about his charity endeavors as well. His helping the poor, his helping in third world countries, he partnered with Operation Smile. Some of you may know that name. They're actually headquartered here in Virginia Beach. Uh, they're a group that helps in third world countries supply some of the operation surgeries needed for cleft palates and cleft lips. Some really incredible stuff that they do. But the guy that was introducing this other guy was telling all about all the different things that he had done for them. And like halfway through, I'm like looking over my neighbor and I'm thinking, is this unicorn doctor really even possible? You know, like, there's no way he can live up to his name. I mean, this poor guy, he's got a lot to live on, like, to try to make it up to the way that this guy's built him up. And I didn't really think, I didn't know if he was going to be able to do it. He started his slide presentation. He had, like, 130 slides. Like, I could do, like, three. <laughs> and usually I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, if he has 130 slides, this is going to be boring. Immediately he had my attention with his humility and kindness and love, but his authority working through the whole thing. He took us through all of these different surgeries, showed us some, again, probably some graphic stuff, but helped show us what some of these products were doing to help people out. And I realized that this guy lived up to his introduction. Like, it was kind of amazing that he was able to come through, and I was like, I, I, I want to know this doctor. And he was kind of an inspiration. I kind of thought, I wonder if this guy's a believer, because he very much showed the love of Christ. Today, I'm trying to offer an introduction to the book of Joshua. Now, I am probably going to gush a little bit. You're, you're probably going to see me talk about it in lofty ways, and I'm going to get real excited about it. And Like normal, I'm going to use my hands, and I'm going to jump around here a little bit. But I, I cannot do it even justice to, to come through on this promise. Joshua already, in my own heart and life, has changed several ways that I think about God and the way I think about the Scriptures. So Joshua, 
Despite whether I do a good or okay or bad job at giving an introduction, Joshua will exceed your expectations because he is going to tell us the theological message that God wants us to know. He's going to give us and proclaim Yahweh to us. I want to start, though, with a couple, a couple of these introductory questions. We have two weeks to do this. These are the couple of questions I'm going to ask of the text today as we consider the writing. Number one, who is Joshua? Like the historical character, who is this person? Who is the author of this book? Now, you may assume that that's the same person, but it's an important question. Who's the author of this book? When did the events of Joshua in the writing, when did those events take place, the conquest, all the things that are happening in this book? Then there's a different question. When was that book written? We have the events, but when was the book about all these events written? Also, what kind of literature are we looking at? We kind of hinted that at the beginning this morning here. What kind of literature are we looking at when we look at the book of Joshua? Who is the audience and their situation? I know everyone likes that whistling over there. Just enjoy it. Now get out of your system. Back here. All right. So, who is the audience that he is writing to? What's the occasion for Joshua? What's the purpose here? Why is it called Joshua? Is this a random name? Like the book of Moses was called the Pentateuch and we have different names for that, but like Joshua was written by Joshua, so it's got to be the Joshua. That's, that's just the way it was. We'll talk about that as well. This sermon, I'll admit, is very different from a normal sermon that we do. Normally, I'm going to go through a couple different verses, paragraphs of scripture. We're going to talk and expose what's going on in those verses. Today, I'm trying to look at the whole book of Joshua and I'm trying to help you understand, help me understand what Joshua is trying to do. So it's different in that way. But what we're trying to get to is to understand the book and the message of Joshua. So let's start with the first question. Who is this historical character, Joshua? You know him. If you've read the Pentateuch at all, you already know him. Even before you get to Joshua, you know who he is. And we're gonna, I'm going to point out four things here. One is that Joshua is a military man. Second is that he is Moses' aide. Third is that he's Moses' successor. And then lastly, he is an Old Testament figure of renown, even to all the New Testament writers. So I go back here. I'm going I'm to list off a lot of scripture. You can certainly write it down if you'd like to. I'm not lying about it, but you can maybe go back to the podcast and see if it's exactly the right stuff. So here we go. Military man. Joshua is the one in Exodus 17, 8 through 13, that Moses tells to go retrieve men and to fight the battle against the Amalekites in the wilderness of Rephidim. If you remember this battle, it's the one where Moses had to hold his staff above his head. And every time that he did so, they were able to wage war and have victory. And if it would fall, they would push back. This is an incredible story, but the, the thing I want to point out here is that it was Joshua who was the one that collected the men, and then he was the military commander to lead them forward in the, the routing of the Amalekites. In Numbers 13 and 14, you learn something else. He was a spy. He and Caleb were the two good spies in that story of the 12 spies that went into Canaan. If you remember that little, some of you may have Sunday school background, the old 10 were bad and two were good spies. They, he was one of the 12, and he was only one of the two that were actually good. The important piece about it is that, that it wasn't like they were good in, or bad in like some sort of strange moral way. What was happening was Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. What that meant was one that trusted God. God said he was going to give this, this, this land to the people. And Joshua and Caleb believed God and came back and said, yes, we can do this. By God's power, we can conquer this land. 
where the other 10 came back and said, we are but grasshoppers compared to these people. There's no way we should be going into this land. And because of Joshua and Caleb's faith, both of them saw the promised land, whereas the other 10 did not. So we get this picture already that Joshua is one, is a military man. He's also Moses' aide. What I mean by that is that he was a close and faithful aide, even in his young life to Moses. We find this in Exodus 33, 11. And then the next one, we go a little bit further, Exodus 24, 13, shows us that he accompanied Moses to Mount Sinai. This is a big deal. No one else did. The elders were told to wait, if you remember that, as he went up into the mountain. And most likely, Joshua went up there with him and saw some of these interactions between God and Moses. Some incredible stuff that happened. So he's Moses' aide. Also, we see him in this area in 31.14, as Moses is nearing death, Joshua accompanies him into the tent of meeting to meet God himself. Then we see that he's actually, this leads us into the next point, that he's his successor. He is going to take the place then of Moses. And it wasn't Moses' decision. This is actually God's decision. In uh, Numbers 27, 15 through 23, God himself, the Lord, designates Joshua as Moses' successor. And he brought him along to commission him. In Numbers 27, we see that God's spirit resides on Joshua. In Deuteronomy 34, 9, Moses lays his hands on Joshua and passes his authority to him. This is in a very solemn ceremony between him and the priests, including Eleazar. Then Moses, this man with great authority, not only has this happen in the midst of God, then he goes to tell the people as well. And in Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 8, Moses reminds the people of God's designated authority. So this man was one that was close to Moses, and he is now, as we've seen over and over again, his successor. I'll say one more thing before we move on in this point. At the beginning of Joshua's book, poor guy doesn't even get his own title. Joshua is known as Moses' aide. <laughs> That's what he's called. Even in verse 1 of Joshua 1.1, we're not talking about Joshua, the leader of Israel. We're talking about Joshua, you know, Moses' aide, his lackey. And all throughout the book, we see not a position of prominence, but actually a, a position of servitude and giving and obedience. And it's actually quite appropriate by the end of Joshua in chapter 24, finally, the Lord calls him a servant of the Lord. Almost as though he got to the end of his life and God said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so by that time, he finally gains that name. Uh, he's an Old Testament figure throughout the, uh, the New Testament talks about him. In Acts 7.45, he's included with several of these giant men of the Old Testament. He's alongside of David, Moses, and Jacob in, in Acts 7.45. And then when we move to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, our author tells us in Hebrews 4.8 that Joshua is mentioned as the one who gave the people rest. Now, we're going to learn through Hebrews that that was temporary rest and that we're all looking for something far greater in the future. That's another topic. But Joshua was an important figure to give them the first idea of what it meant to actually have rest that God had promised. I don't want to pass by one more thing. Joshua's name is very important. His name used to be, if, I don't know if you remember this, his name used to be Hoshea, H-O-S-H-E-A. Uh, but in Numbers 13, when Moses picks out the group of 12 men who will go and spy on Canaan and bring back the report, at the end there's this little interesting sentence that says he changed his name from Hosea to Joshua. This is not a small thing. 
Hosea means he delivers or he saves. That's a great name. I mean, I'd love to have that name. But Joshua takes it a step further. It's a far better name. What it does is it brings in not only just random who it was that delivered, maybe it was the nation of Israel, he, like that person delivered, or Joshua's the one who delivered. But Joshua itself means Yahweh delivers or Yahweh saves. In his name, wrapped up in his exact name itself, it points all glory to God. And it's not anymore Joshua who's doing the work. In his name alone, it's pointing to God's glory. So it's very significant that God, and through Moses, would change his name to Yahweh saves. So next question I ask, who is the author of this book? Now, a lot of us would just guess, well, it's pretty simple. We think we know who it is. It's got to be Joshua. Not as simple as you might think. There's much controversy here. I'm going to list a few of them. You have Joshua. You have the Eliezer, the priest, and his son Phineas at the end we see in this book. We have the suggestion of Samuel, the time of David, and some of the comments that he makes. It's very much like what we see in First and Second Samuel. We have a possibility that could be Isaiah. And some even say that it's uh, the people that wrote the Pentateuch. And what I mean by that is they mean not Moses. What they mean is the group that wrote the Pentateuch. And they're talking about, there's a theory called the JEDP theory. Now, this is nerdy stuff. Hang with me for a moment. The reason this is important is because they're trying to make sense of this document that has so many different strands running through it. So JEDP, what's that for? J is for Yahweh. E is for Elohim. D is for Deuteronomistic writer. P is for a priestly writer. The reason that's important is they were trying to figure out who put this whole thing together. The Pentateuch is incredible. And you have strands that run through it where you see Elohim's name used over and over again. And then you have different strands that have, it's very priestly in its presentation. And then other ways that Yahweh, the, way, the word Yahweh instead of Elohim is used. And then other places you have this Deuteronomistic idea. All that means is the retelling of the law for teaching value. So they put this idea out there that says maybe Joshua, because it's so much like the Pentateuch, maybe it's one of those writers that wrote Joshua. I'll tell you right now, JDP theory is, is no help to me except for the fact that it pushes us to understand that there's different strands running through the Pentateuch. I believe what the Bible says, and I think there's a lot to be there. There's a different discussion to be had here. But I believe it's Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. The thing that's helpful for us is to see but there's things that happen in Joshua that are very much like the Pentateuch. Same on the other side. There's other guys that say, no, whoever wrote Judges, that's the person who wrote Joshua. They are very similar as well. And it kind of gets pulled in, the, in one or two ways oftentimes. That is because Joshua is a very transitory book. You get a transition here. Some have said that it's, it's almost like a bridge from the, where we saw like the people wandering in the wilderness to the people dwelling and living in the land under his covenant. This book in between is taking us from one area to the next area and helping us understand what it's supposed to be and why. So you ask the question, who is it? There's so many options. Who, who could have written this book? Who was the one? How do we, did we talk about this? We don't have a deliberate statement. Like a lot of the books that we have here, you go to your shelf or maybe the, the bookshelf in the back, you'd open the, the dust cover and you'd see, oh, copyright, such and such a year. You'd see this is the person who wrote the book. Here are the three editors that helped them and it was published in New York, New York City. Great, we got it. We know where this came from. When you open your, your Bible and look at Joshua, all you see is the title Joshua on the front. 
So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that Joshua is the one that wrote it? Or is that the one that's just categorizing the whole thing? Who is the one that wrote this book? I will say one more thing. We don't have to have that copyright and by Joshua, edited by Moses and the gang. We don't need that. We have what we have and it's sufficient for us. So we're thankful in that what we have in God's word is everything we need. But I'll say this, as a student of the word, when I come to this, I have to think about these things seriously and how God has done this. And the product that I hold in my hands, which is inspired, the word of God that Paul, uh, we just heard that Paul told us last week, that it's inspired, God breathed, helping us knowing it's good for all these different good uses, for teaching, instruction, correction, reproof. So what does that mean? In Joshua 8.32 and in 24.26, you're going to see that Joshua is told to write things down. He is the one told to record this in the book of the law, specifically in 2426. He's supposed to record these events and commands in the law of God. Now, that's not to say, though, that he did every single bit. You're going to have a very difficult time once you get to the end of Joshua's life that he was buried in a certain place, and you have the specific Joshua burial notice. Who wrote that? Could Joshua have done it himself and wrote a like a prophetic burial notice? He certainly could have. But then we have another one for Eliezer as well. So we were left questioning, is it possible that others had an influence on this book? I will say this in a believing and I would say a conservative manner, absolutely. We have Joshua writing the majority of this text, a, a huge majority. All the material, I think, is what he put together. But there's parts in here that help us understand that there may have been a process in which God was working to form this book. Uh, Again, would I die for the specific answer of how that happened? I don't know. None of us do know exactly how that happened. I will say this, Paul is still right. It is still God-breathed, and it is still inerrant, and we completely can trust it. Why is this, though, this talk about this, like, why is it important for us? Is this just like ivory tower talking about, like, weird Old Testament things and let's pull up archaeological digs and try to figure this all out? No. This is why it's important. It helps us to see that the authorship of this came out of a historical, textual, and an archaeological background. The questions people have about this book are because when you read it, It's almost as though the different types of literatures that fit together are like the patchwork of a quilt. And when you see the quilt, it's an amazing work of art, and it's telling a story. But as you see the different pieces all together, you're thinking, that couldn't have been one person to that, and then one person to that. And the seams that run through there seem to give us different ideas of what's going on and how it would be used to teach, how it would be used within Israel themselves and this covenant-keeping people. And so, again, it points out the differences between these things. What it does for us is it should help highlight for us how important are these different strands that run through the book of Joshua. My task is to help us make sense of some of these things and put it together for the overall message of the book of Joshua. So, who wrote the book of Joshua? I believe that it was Joshua that we find here in this book who wrote the bulk of the material and that it was ranged and finished by other faithful men, catch this, who were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write divine scripture, just as much as Joshua was. I, I can't tell you exactly how it worked out, but I can trust that God's word is true. When did the event of Joshua take place? When did these conquests take place? This is where probably those that are history buffs or enthusiasts, I'll call you, you that love history would like to know this. Most likely... 
we are, uh, my, from the study that I'm looking at, I think the best thing we do, and we have to base it both off of the Exodus and what's going on there, and then also how the kings write down records. But the best place I think that we find this is right around 1400 BC. This is the late Bronze Era. Now, for at least 90% of us, we have no idea what that means. So, I'll, I'll just give you some ideas. We have some technologies forming. We do not have steel yet. We have bronze being the main metal of industry going forward. The thing that's important to know about this little section of promised land, it's at the center of all these different trade routes. In this era, you have three major powers. You have the Babylonians, you have the Hittites, and you have the Egyptians. Obviously, we know the Egyptians probably best through our own biblical knowledge. All of them are at play and jostling for position in what is the known world at this time. This is where we find the conquest taking place, about 1400 BC. But then the next question, when was the book written? When was the book itself put together? This is an interesting question for us. Because if we don't take it seriously, we'll just assume something. And then when we get to problems that others that will struggle with and they'll push back, we have to take it seriously that there's other things that don't seem to match that Joshua even could have written specifically. So how do we help understand that? I want to say, I believe, like I said before, a large bulk of this was done by Joshua. We have other things that maybe have some, a little bit of commentary and compiling at the end of his life. That being said, the majority of this was put together post-conquest. So what I mean by that is all the lands have been conquered to the point that he says, now go and dwell in these lands. The distribution of the lands have been given out to all the different tribes. And we stand now at a place where Joshua is compiling and putting these things together. Now that being said, remember that he's not writing history. Remember, he's trying to put together all these pieces in a theological work, a message to proclaim something. He's not just trying to put down history. We'll talk about that in a moment. But that being said, these are, there are several different things that we see that go into the book. I talked about like a patchwork of different things going on. Joshua had to get all the different pieces together to make sure he could put this story together. He wasn't there at Rahab's house. He had to get that report from the spies. He wasn't there in all the other military endeavors. He was probably on most of them, but all the different things that go on, he had to get that material from somewhere. So let's be honest about him working through that and getting that all together and putting together as a whole. Depending how old we think Joshua was when he was with Caleb going into the, the promised land to spy it out, he has, after the conquest, somewhere between 25 and 50 years to write this book out. So he has plenty of time to take all these different lists, all these different things that he learned about the conquests, all the different theological uh, teachings that was done in a ceremony or whatever you have you, and put them together in a theological whole. Remember then that none of this, this compilation, because I'm going to say something in a minute, it's going to sound strange, this compilation, God is over all of this process. So I believe that it's probably realistic to think somewhere after 1400 B.C., all the way up to possibly even 1000 B.C., we have this book being put together. Again, the bulk of it is done most likely in Joshua's time. None of that means, however, that this was incomplete and somehow it was resulting in wrong doctrine. Like we get scared, like, ah, if it's not just all out there in one thing, are we going to lose part of it or is it incorrect? No, this process is the same way that God worked to make his world through process and progress. God does this and is faithful and all-powerful. 
We know this to be true, and it's how he works here in his books. Through natural men, supernaturally. His spirit carrying them along. And thus what we have here is inerrant, inspired scripture. Uh, so we talked about this. I want to ask the next question. What kind of literature is the Bible? I'm sorry, is, is the book of Joshua? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. And there's more than this, but I'm going to list them. I'm going to read it. You have poetry, ancient war poetry, a spy narrative report, holy war teaching material or doctrine, divine test narrative, a story of a military ruse, polemical narrative. That means a story that's supposed to attack an ideology. Holy war miracle stories, conquest itineraries with all the different details, lists of cities, holy war theology, a report of the covenant ceremony and what happened there, burial notices, political boundaries, city lists, and notes on the Canaanites remaining in the land at the end of all this was done. And there's actually more than just this. My point here is that we have several different genres and types of literature in the book of Joshua. But I want to say one more thing. Joshua is a book of prophecy. Now that may sound strange to you because you only think about prophecy being revelation. What I mean by this is it is giving credence to what happened and helping us understand the theological significance of what happened. So what do I mean by that? When you and I think of Joshua, if you have any like a church background, we think of some sort of historical book. And that's right. But the problem as American English thinkers and readers is when we do that, we think of like ninth and 10th grade history. We sat down, we had to get dates, we had to make sure we got all the facts, we had to memorize lists of names, understanding this dynasty and that, and which one overthrew which, which one followed which part of the kingdom, and why it was important. What we're talking about is facts when we think about history. That's a very American idea that facts is, is what we're talking about. That would lead us down the wrong path and it will give us an improper expectation of what to look for here. What's happening here is different. The Jewish traditional scholars put jo Joshua at the front of what's called the former prophets. Now the first section of scripture is called the Pentateuch. You know this. But the second one is called the former prophets. That went from Joshua all the way to 2 Kings, minus Ruth. Why, though, was it called the prophets? I'm leaving heavily on Martin Woodstra. He's been a good scholar for me, very helpful in leading me through. I'm not going to quote him, but I think there's some helpful things in his language here that I think I'm going to read. When we refer to former prophets, what he is saying is the intent is to present an interpretative prophetical history, and I'll explain all this, of God's dealings with his covenant people from the death of Moses all the way to the time of the Babylonian captivity, when they go into exile. So that amount of time, what Joshua is doing here is he's using the facts of history, the real stuff that happened, but he's not just giving you all of it at one time. Instead, he is choosing along the way how to helpfully build the story and what actually happened. It is not as though he is doing something that's illegitimate. This is totally biased. It's on purpose because it's headed towards a theological goal. He is adding a divine perspective to history. Man, I wish we could have that in our day. I wish I could understand the theological significance of what Hitler did or all the different things in the background there. Or even we come to our present time and all the stuff that we deal with, even respectfully as we think of and speak of our president now. 
What is God doing in the world? Why is he doing these things and what's the purpose for all of this? Joshua in that way is very much a prophecy. It's helping us understand the facts and the story overall and then giving it true meaning. So in Joshua, we see it this way. It's not just narrative. It's not just war poetry. It's not just something that we can do what we want to with. There is an element that they are giving us a prophetical understanding, a divine perspective on real life. Who is the audience then? And what is their situation like? You know some of this. Like if we were in, when we read James, if you remember this, it was to the 12 tribes of dispersion. We don't get such an address here in the book of Joshua. That's because it wasn't only specifically to one local group at one specific time. Rather, Joshua is written to an audience called the people of God. He is writing down theological history for all of God's covenant people for the future as they trust God. This is important information that they might understand and know God's promises that he has kept them and what he promises for the future as well. All this stuff is so important to him, but not for just one group of people. It wasn't just one problem. A lot of times Paul or James or Peter will write because there's a problem in the church. That's not what we're seeing here. We're instead seeing him put down theological history so that we might all look back to it and understand who God is. Both that we understand God, but understand his promises, how he works with his people, how we're to respond, the failures of his people, you name it. As we go through this, it's for all and every generations of God's people to understand who he is. And so for that reason, Joshua is extremely meaningful for us. We would, again, be foolish not to listen. And it's very much important for who we are. Um, who are the characters? And I'm going to roll this in with the next point. Who are the characters and why is this book named Joshua? You know the characters. Joshua, obviously. You know the people of Israel. You know all the different peoples that surround this area. You've got like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites. You have the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, as my dad always says, and the Mosquito Bites. Now, I labored over whether I should say that or not. So, You can think less of me. It's okay. Uh, I took my dad's joke. These are characters, but they reveal something greater. They are not the main character. In all of us, we see the characters, but the main character is God. Don't miss this. This is not about one main character, Joshua, and his threat of military conquest all throughout. Don't let Joshua steal this book. This is God's book. And as such, we must listen and understand that. It's divine, it's authority. God initiates the first action in the book, and he brings it all the way to the end where Joshua wraps all of it up by saying, you must take yourself seriously before this God in obedience and being faithful to this covenant God. But why then is the book named Joshua? Is it because he was Moses' aide? Is it because uh, he was the one who probably authored the book? Is it because he was the main human agent in all of this? That's certainly true, uh, but it falls short of the real reason. The whole reason this book is named Joshua was because of the name of Joshua. We already discussed his name. He got turned from Hosea to Joshua. Why? Because it's an exclamation point for us to know it's not Joshua or any of God's servants who deliver and save us. It is Yahweh himself. 
It brings up that ever-present struggle that you and I have when we have this question about, okay, is it God's sovereignty or man's responsibility? Ah, I'm not really sure. Do I bring myself and, and, and ask God to do this or does he come down and work with me? What am I supposed to do with all of that? God makes it very clear who does the saving. God makes it very clear who does the initiating. It is Yahweh who delivers. It is Yahweh who saves. Don't you dare put the, all the authority and all the, the grandeur and glory, we sang it this morning, the glory to a man, Joshua. And may we never even be tempted to worship, in a sense, Joshua and how good he did at what he did. There are many men and women throughout history who have done wonderful obeying God. But remember, the name, Joshua, it's Yahweh who saves. It's Yahweh who delivers. This is a word for us today. I'll say two more things and we'll be done. This reminds us, friend, if you're an unbeliever here and you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't know who Jesus Christ is and you don't know him personally, have not repented of sin and asked him to be your God and your Savior and love him with your heart, soul, and mind, you're in a very dangerous place. Now, how did I get and jump all the way there? Joshua is showing us the exact same thing. Today, if you sit here and for some reason you're not convinced that you need God, he shows us that you must have God. It is not anyone here that can deliver you. I can't deliver you. This group of people who might even love you can't deliver you. Only Yahweh can save and deliver. And most importantly, Joshua, when translated from that Hebrew word to the Greek word, is the exact same name for Jesus. Many of you probably already know this. It's true. It's not a, like a clever trick of a preacher. This is truth. We are getting the same thing. Joshua in the Old Testament Hebrew, when we come to the Greek, means Jesus. So in this one sense, they had the same name. That is because we see God, Emmanuel, God with us, being our deliverer, being the one who saves us. And so, friend, if you're here today and you don't know this God, may, may, may you return repent of your sin and turn to him? Please talk to me. Talk to someone here, one of our elders, one of the, some, maybe the person you came with. This is far more important than anything else in your life. For you believers, my brothers and sisters, I want to draw your attention to Paul again. He tells us that your salvation's not over. God saves, God delivers. It's not just something in the past. That's why it's so ironic that he would say this. I, and I, Jordan and I are wrestling through this now. Why would he say this? Why did he say God promises and fulfills his promises? One reason is because what Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he doesn't leave us there. He still goes back and talks like Joshua, for it is God, it is the Lord who is doing this inside of you. You know this from Philippians 2, 12 and 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. May I remind you, brothers and sisters, fellow believers, that our salvation, our life in Christ, is not accomplished on our own. We must trust our Lord and Savior. This is not bad news. This is good news. This is a comfort to the weary soul that needs Jesus. If you don't need Jesus, then you're in trouble. Everyone in this room, can I, can I call you and proclaim Christ to you? You need Jesus. I need Jesus more now than I ever have. And I hope until my dying day, I need Jesus to take me to his arms one day. Without that need, you have nothing. You must know him. Whether you're an unbeliever or you're a believer, I call you to need Jesus.
Let us work then with all of our energy that he gives to us to love and obey and proclaim him. Yahweh is the one who saves. Yahweh is the one who delivers. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Joshua, our brother, and uh, the one who shows us his ultimate end is 110 years, he dies. And he goes to be with you. We don't know the rest of that story, but what we do know is that there is a better Joshua that has come. One that shows that the Lord truly does save and deliver his people. Not just from Egypt, not just from the unrighteous people in Canaan, but from the terrible burden of sin that we cannot throw off. Jesus, would you work in us today? May we lift you high. Would you give us wisdom to know you and love you and speak truth about you and proclaim you to the nations? May we enjoy you forever in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.